An entire industry has grown up around nutrition and health, with people pushing everything from shakes to meal kits to special diets. While some of the claims surrounding such products can be questionable at best, the field of nutrition science is growing, filled with researchers who are working to truly understand the science of food and health. That is a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department. Our guest today is Dr. Michelle Cardell. Cardell is an obesity and nutrition scientist, registered dietitian, the Director of Global Clinical Research and Nutrition at WW International, Inc., and a faculty member at the University of Florida College of Medicine, where she's also an associate director for the Center for Integrative Cardiovascular and Metabolic Diseases. Her research is focused on three areas, assessing the effects of psychosocial factors on eating behavior and obesity-related disease, the development and implementation of effective healthy lifestyle interventions with a focus on underserved populations, and improving gender equity within academia. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us again. We're so glad to have you back. Thanks. It's wonderful to be back. I appreciate the invite. I think just to begin our conversation, I wondered if you could talk about what is nutrition science? Yeah, so nutrition science is basically a study of how the body responds to different foods and how that ultimately uh, influences various aspects of our health. So, Michelle, thank you again for joining us. It's such a pleasure to, to have you on the, on the podcast with us once again. I'm, I'm curious about the difference between a nutritionist and a registered dietitian. Yeah, it's a great question, John. So, Basically, anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. There is no licensing board. There's no credentials required for somebody to say they're a nutritionist. A lot of the people that you see, you know, on Instagram who are talking about like eating a certain way or certain diets or trying to sell you supplements and, you know, in their profile, it says they're a nutritionist. That doesn't really have any sort of quantifiable meaning. Whereas conversely, to be a registered dietitian, somebody has to get a four-year undergraduate degree in a nutrition or related-based science degree. And then on top of that, they have to qualify and be accepted into an internship. So these internships are highly competitive. It's very difficult to get into them. And through those dietetic internships, you gain uh, 1,200 hours of supervised learning and training where you are taught how to counsel patients. You learn about the ins and outs of nutrition and managing nutrition from a counseling perspective. And then on top of that, then you have to take an exam to become a registered dietitian that is like overseen by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. So there's many, many steps to becoming a registered dietitian. Um, and in a clinical setting, when you go and see somebody for food-related uh, factors, you're going to get referred to a registered dietitian or registered dietitian nutritionist. Again, very different than somebody who just identifies as a nutritionist. How did you get interested in this field of study? Yeah, so when I was an undergrad, I took this really interesting class called Death, Dying, and the Individual. 
Uh, Rosemary's face right now is yeah. great. I was like, it sounds great. I want to take it now. <laughs> yes, it was, it was a fascinating class. Um, you know, in our society, we don't tend to talk about death a lot. And while in that class, um, this group came in and they came from a hospice group and they talked to us and said, you know, we're always in need of hospice volunteers. It's an area where we really struggle to get volunteers because we don't talk about death a lot in our culture and people almost see it as like morbid in a way. So they said, if anybody's interested, you know, please let us know. We'd love to have more volunteers. And I thought, you know, I I think I could do this. Like, this is something that I think go and provide respite care for the families or, um, you know, during somebody's end of life care. And so I I volunteered with them. I underwent like the pretty extensive training to become a hospice volunteer. And I, I did that for about 10 years. And during that time as a volunteer, I heard a lot of different stories from people. End of life is like this really, um, privileged time to get to be around folks. People are, have lost a lot of their inhibitions and are, are, are open to being vulnerable and really sharing with you their, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, how they're processing this end of life piece. And a lot of people, you know, share things with me. For example, I had a patient say, you know, I'm worried I killed myself with a fork basically. And I was, I was 19 years old when I started as a hospice volunteer. Like I in no way, shape or form was thinking about how my choices today would impact me 20, 30, 50 years down the road or how that could potentially impact my quality of life. And so that was the first time that I really was getting interested in nutrition. Um, At that point, I was a biology major and I was minoring in chemistry. So a really heavy science background. Um, And then it wasn't until like working with these hospice patients that I was like, this is fascinating to me that, that from their perspective, this had a role in, in not just their life, but also in the, at the end of their life, it's something that was coming up for them. And so I, I applied to do a master's in nutrition and then a PhD in nutrition and I had no idea what I was doing when I started. I had never taken a nutrition course before my master's program. Once I started, I I just fell in love with the profession. Oh, that's that's really that's a great story. That's a that's a great foundation. I mean, and, and when when I've been uh, visiting family and and nursing homes, it was very clear that how critical nutrition was as part of the story. And it seemed like a lot of the therapies. For some, mm-hmm. for individuals involved, just ways of trying to make sure that they were getting, you know, sufficient sustenance in terms, you know, in their diets, and so I, I find that to be a, it's an interesting path into nutrition for for you. Yeah, absolutely. And during my dietetic internship, it was so eye opening to see the foundation of care for certain patients is so based in in nutrition. So, for example, in the burn unit where you're working with a patient who has burns over 70% of their body, their metabolic rate has increased, you know, significantly to help to have in order for the body to heal itself. But oftentimes, you know, if they have a burn over their face, they can't eat. So then as a registered dietitian, you're coming in, you're calculating their body's energy needs. You're working with the physician to help identify what is the best route 
to feed this patient if they can't do it orally. So, you know, people tend to think about a registered dietitian working in, you know, the weight management space, which is the area that I work in, but there's all these other incredibly important areas that registered dietitians are working in, in HIV, in cancer, in burn unit, in trauma, you know, in the NICU. It's, it is such a rewarding career to, to, and a real privilege to get to be a part of it. You mentioned sort of your focus, Michelle, and I wonder if you could talk a bit about how you became interested in, in um, sort of eating behavior and obesity in particular. Yeah. So, you know, once I started grad school, um, you know, and I, I have to say this, like I had never done research before I started grad school uh, for all those grad students out there listening. You know, I hope that this makes you feel better. But the first two years of grad school, I basically walked around feeling like the dumbest person in the room at all times. I didn't know what the National Institute of Health was. I didn't know what anything about research. It was all so new to me. And I was really fortunate that I I have an amazing PhD mentor, Dr. Jose Fernandez, who really encouraged me to explore what are the areas that I was passionate about and to not just follow in his footsteps. So he is a statistical geneticist. Mm. So started doing some work in the same area that he was doing work, looking at genetic predictors of body composition. But ultimately, through exploring the literature, I really found my passion to be more focused on eating behavior, um, particularly in underserved populations, and how that affected the development of obesity. You know, when you were talking a bit about the these distinctions between kind of the, you know, anybody can hang out a nutritionist shingle, and mm-hmm. and express opinions. You've you've commented a bit about the idea of these uh, the influencer advice and some of the misguided nutrition advice, and I, I I really appreciated the one piece that you wrote where you were talking about some of the uh, signals, the red flags of concern. Could you talk a little bit about you know what people should be aware of and say, well, wait a minute, you may not want to follow these uh, nuggets of so-called wisdom. Uh, So the first thing that you want to look out for is somebody making like these huge claims or like blanket statements. So something like carbs are bad for you or no one should eat sugar. You know, um, there's no one right way to eat. And ultimately, um, you know, the dietary pattern that you choose should be decided by, you know, what do you like? What do you dislike? What's what's available to you in terms of your resources? And then also what's your medical history? And ultimately a one size fits all doesn't work. The data shows that it's a lot less about the macronutrient composition of your diet, whether it's high fat or high carb in terms of effectiveness for weight loss over the long term, than it is of how well that you can you know, adhere to that diet. Mm -hmm. Adherence reigns, you know, so whatever works for you over the long term is what's going to work for you. And it needs to be a solution that's livable. It needs to be something that actually works within your life. And at the end of the day, you know, with these influencers, often their body is their business card in many ways. 
and that's what they use to to have influence. But just because somebody is fit or young or attractive doesn't mean that if you do what they do, you're going to look like them. We could all move our bodies in the exact same way and eat the same things. And we would, our body shapes and size would look very different across the board. So that's the first thing that I would watch out. The second red flag would be that an influencer is selling something like a supplement or a detox or a tea. That is a huge red flag. And people are struggling with their weight. They're in a super vulnerable place. And I get really frustrated when I see that um, people are basically targeting their marketing to people who are in a really vulnerable place and then offering them a quick fix that is not based in evidence whatsoever. Um, And then the third flag is that they're missing credentials. You know, we talked about already, what's the difference between a registered dietitian or registered dietitian nutritionist versus just somebody who says that they're a nutritionist? Anyone who just says that they're a nutritionist, that in no way, shape or form says that they have the Um, that they've studied the area of nutrition, that it comes from an accredited university. You know, the dietitians are going to have completed at least 1,200 hours of supervised practice and passed a board certifying exam. So you want to make sure that who you're turning to for nutrition or weight-related advice is somebody who has the credentials to back that up. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about nutrition and statistics with Michelle Cardell. Michelle, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the obesity research you do, and in particular, I'm thinking about, you know, the things that you think listeners need to understand about obesity. It's such a fraught conversation, and it seems like every few months it's back in the news, you know, some... Some some study is showing one things, you know, some there's been a lot of discussion around obesity and covid. And so I want and it feels like it can be confusing to figure out, like, what what do we know about obesity? So I wonder, again, if you could just share sort of what you think listeners need to understand. Absolutely. So first off, I think a really important distinction is to understand what obesity is. So obesity is when somebody has an excess amount of adipose tissue that is causing health problems, okay? This is very different than somebody wanting to lose weight to reach like a a westernized thin ideal, okay? These are two separate things. Obesity is defined by the influence on health. So having simply an elevated BMI, BMI is a screening tool. It is not a diagnostic tool. So there needs to be clear differentiation between what obesity is. Two, obesity is a very complex and multifactorial disease that can be developed in a variety of different ways. So you can develop obesity as as a combination of endocrine factors, other physiological factors, medications that you're on, sociocultural factors, Um, It can be due to the environment that you're in, behaviors that you engage in, but it's very complex. You know, as as you're talking about this, I I find that a lot of the ways that that as I 
so I've read some of your work that really resonates for me is even even the language of like nutrition plan versus dieting and weight loss language. There's a lot of what I've what when reading your stuff that I think about framing as being a really important part of this this message and understanding what an intervention is. So can can you just just comment a little bit about you know sort of thinking about obesity in a way for, for particularly for for intervention? I mean, you talked about all this the fact that it's multifactorial doesn't make it easier for an intervention. I think it makes it much harder. So maybe you talk a little bit about kind of the interventions that you think about. Absolutely. So when we think about interventions for obesity, we tend to think about three different buckets. One is intensive lifestyle interventions. Two is pharmacotherapy. And three is devices or bariatric surgery. And so across treatment modalities, the lifestyle intervention piece is going to be the foundation of that. So whether you're taking um, a prescription for an anti-obesity medication or, you know, planning to undergo bariatric surgery or a combination of the above, across the board, uh, lifestyle intervention is going to be the foundation of that treatment. So what does intensive lifestyle intervention actually mean? It does not mean dieting. Okay, dieting to me is defined by a self-directed engagement in certain behaviors or following a certain diet and usually coincides with something along the lines of like a fad diet. Okay, so the cabbage soup diet is considered dieting, which if your mom ever did that, like my mom did, it is horrible when you (laughs) have a soup diet. You know, I, I have seen patients who have tried, you know, some really interesting diets like the grapefruit diet, the cookie diet. There's so many different diets out there. So that is dieting. And that is a very, very different than, than what you do in intensive lifestyle intervention. Intensive lifestyle interventions are evidence-based. They include not just changes in terms of your food and your activity, but also utilizes behavior change strategies. You want to engage in something that has an evidence base behind it, that has done research, you know, looking at this program or this intervention. You you mentioned uh, this this issue of the psychosocial factors that are at play, and I wonder if you could, one explain what a psychosocial factor is. And then two, talk about how do you measure them in relation to something like, you know, um, lifestyle interventions or, or, or obesity interventions? Yeah. So in my research, um, when I'm talking about psychosocial factors, I'm talking about the culmination of psychological and social factors that interact and then ultimately how they influence eating behavior and risk for obesity. So in my research, some examples of psychosocial factors that we've studied are um, stress. How does stress influence our our eating behavior and risk for obesity? Um, Experiences with food insecurity, uh, with poverty, with racism and discrimination. Um, Those are the type of psychosocial factors that I have uh, looked at in my research. So, I'd, you know, you've mentioned evidence-based a couple of times in our conversation here, and you're talking about your research. Could you just give a, a, a quick sketch of an example of a kind of study that might be conducted to evaluate, you know, one of the, you know, things like you just mentioned stress as a, and its impact on, on, on weight and on other change. So can, can you describe that study and what you did and how it was conducted? 
Yeah, so I can talk um, a little bit about a study that we did that actually experimentally manipulated social status and looked at the effect of of the experimental manipulation on eating behavior, which would thereby influence, um, you know, the development of obesity. So what we did in a laboratory setting was we randomized people to experimentally high and experimentally low social status conditions. And then in the lab, we measured how did that influence what they ate and how much they ate, as well as their levels of physical activity. And we were able to look at 24-hour energy balance. And what we learned from that study is that when we place people in experimentally low social status conditions, even when it's for an acute amount of time, that it directly influenced their eating behavior such that they ate more calories and ended up in more positive energy balance than when individuals were randomized to a high social status condition. So to quantify that for you, in the first study that we did um, on this topic, It was a randomized crossover design. So participants experienced both the low and the high social status condition. So we were able to look at within-person variation. And when placed in the low social status condition, it was only a 40-minute manipulation. But in the lunchtime meal that they ate after that manipulation, they ate 130 more calories at lunch than they did when they were placed in the high social status condition. So for me, the big takeaway from that body of of studies is that people are experiencing this low social status in a lab for a very acute period of time. And that alone was enough to influence their eating behavior in a way that could be adverse if it was done in excess over time. But if you think about people who are in low social status positions in life and we step back from this, People don't experience poverty or food insecurity for 40 minutes. People don't experience racism and discrimination for a short period of time. These are cycles. They're cycles of poverty. They're cycles of privilege in our society. And when people are experiencing these things, it's oftentimes in a chronic manner over the long term. So when I think about this and and the implications on health, experiencing food insecurity, experiencing poverty, and experiencing the social inequities that we have in our society, those things in and of themselves set up an obesogenic environment or an environment that predisposes individuals to develop obesity. So just as one, one last quick question. You know, I was intrigued to read that some of the, the specialized training that you had, that you have had includes things that I had absolutely no clue what it meant. And that, now that happens pretty regularly on this show. But, but, you know, but, but, you know, the idea of motivational interviewing and acceptance and, com- and commitment therapy, I, I mm-hmm. just was really curious. What, what does that, if you give a quick, a quick definition of those. Sure. So motivational interviewing is when we work with a patient and really motivate them to identify what is the best path forward for them. And so you're there basically to facilitate that conversation essentially with themselves. 
For acceptance and commitment therapy, this is a a therapy, and I'll talk about it in the weight-related space because that's where I'm most familiar with the literature. Dr. Evan Foreman and Dr. Megan Buttron from Drexel University basically took acceptance and commitment therapy and modified it and changed it to what's called acceptance-based therapy for weight loss. And they took evidence-based components of standard behavioral therapy that we utilize in, in weight loss or healthy lifestyle interventions. And to that, they added these components from acceptance and commitment therapy, really focused on mindfulness and self-regulation skills and value-driven living. What that means is assessing your values and making sure that the actions that you engage in align with that value system. And in standard behavioral therapy interventions, we're pretty happy in adults if we see about 5 to 8% body weight loss over a one-year period. But what Dr. Foreman and Butcherin saw was actually 13.3% body weight loss over that one-year period. Wow. So we're reaching almost like pharmacotherapy levels of weight loss uh, utilizing this therapy. Wow, thank you. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here and to talk with you all. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.